Good morning. Uh, we are continuing to study in the Psalms, and we're going to be in Psalm 112 this morning. If you're visiting, again, we're so glad you're here. Thanks for visiting our time of worship. And uh, my name is Brian Habig. I'm one of the pastors here. This summer, we've been looking at different Psalms here and there. Last week, we looked at the Psalm right before this, and, and I said last week, I hope you can come back because we're going to look at how, <clears throat> excuse me, how these two psalms are connected. So we're coming to 112. If you're here and you don't have a Bible, you can follow there in the bulletin. Um, Tim just referred to it in the prayer. Dominant news item this past week was the death of Robin Williams. And, you know, it's, it's not unusual for celebrities or famous people to pass away. But I, uh, I commented to a couple of people this week, I don't know that I have a recollection of as many personal anecdotes about a famous person as I heard this past week. Even people that I knew, I had a couple of Facebook friends who, uh, who posted about just run-ins they had with Robin Williams somewhere. They just happened to be in the right place and uh, how personable he was, how kind he was. A buddy of mine is a pastor in San Francisco and he said that um, occasionally Robin Williams would worship with them and he'd see um, him coming through communion and just, just really liked him. And uh, this you know, st- struck a chord for, uh, on a lot of levels, but something that we talked about, if you were here last week, is thinking about your own funeral one day and saying that there are people who do you know, life coaching and consulting and um, productivity and um, go-to people who will say that it can be a beneficial exercise to not so much picture the, the, the logistics of the funeral, but to think about what would you want people to say when you finally die? You know, if you had one family member and one friend and one co-worker, maybe one townsperson, uh, and just what would be the best case scenario that you would want them to say about you, and then to think about, well, then if they were going to say that, what would that mean for my life now? Now, I mentioned this last week, but I really want to put this in front of you now. Last week, we talked about God. Psalm 111 is about God. This psalm is about a person, and it's about an imperfect person, but someone that as you read this, you would say, I would like to be, like, I would like to be that kind of person. And I want you to note this, that we don't know who wrote 111 or 112. We don't know who the psalmist is. But the psalmist uses a term to describe this person that we're probably not that comfortable with. It's not a term that we use a lot. But when you hear the description of what that means, it's the kind of life that we admire. And I think that we would aspire to. It's what we would want said about us at the end. How do you get it? Let's look at Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm 
trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're here and we thank you that we can sing and we can say your word, that we can give, that we can greet and hug and shake hands. We thank you especially for your word. And as we sit at your feet, we pray that you would give us your wisdom. We have tried this past week to manufacture our own, and we have uh, reaped what we've sown, and we need your help. And so we pray that you would open up your your precious word to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last year, a couple of guys at Google did a little project, or big project, they, uh, they developed a software and used some of these secret Google algorithms to try to, to come up with a list of the most important people in the history of the world. And when they tabulated everything, the answer for number one, interestingly, was Jesus. The answer for number three was Muhammad. Anybody want to guess who number two was? Napoleon. Yeah, okay. We're laughing because we're not French. All right, there would have been like a, a round of applause if we were in France. But it's. Uh, but it was interesting. I don't know a bunch about him. I, I just kind of remember a few snippets, and I decided to do some really extensive research to prepare for this. And what it said on Wikipedia was... <laughs> just kidding. I use that joke about once a year. Sorry. But, uh, but no, really, he was an amazing guy. Uh, and you think about it, even from different angles, just think about him politically as a leader. He became extremely powerful. And all the chaos and upheaval of the French Revolution, it's stabilized under Napoleon. Some people might say because he was a tyrant, but, I mean, he was able to accomplish that as a leader. The Napoleonic Code, that, that approach to law, which is actually... Uh, the law in the state of Louisiana. His military accomplishments are amazing. Under Napoleon, France pretty much controlled what we call Europe up until his death, 1815, the Battle of Waterloo. Amazing man. Ranks number two in their tabulations as the most important people in the world. Now, here's the thing. How many of you in 2014 have really thought about Napoleon? I haven't, and I think most of you have not. Now, that is a window into something that we already all know. We know it, we just kind of slip away from it getting in our hearts, and and it it is that. No matter how much you accomplish, politically, financially, legally, uh, strength, whatever, you can be easily forgotten. It, It would have been inconceivable that he would be forgotten in any generation by his peers, but look where we are. And there's another Frenchman, Charles de Gaulle, who, who he, you've probably heard this quote before, 
The cemeteries of the world are full of indispensable men. The cemeteries of the world are full of people that their peers would have, or they would have thought about themselves, that like, the, the world can hardly operate without me. Gone. Forgotten. Now, contrast that with verse 6 of what we just read. The righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. And the question I want to ask you is, is that real? Is that just a psalmist being flowery and kind of being rhetorically overcharged? Or could that actually be true that a a human being in the psalmist's day or in our day could actually be remembered forever? Now, here's, here's how I want to look at this. First thing is this. What kind of person is being described in Psalm 112? And I don't want to insult your intelligence, but again, 111 is about God. 112 is about a person. What kind of person? And then the second thing, and really this is the $65,000 question, is how do you get that? If you look at that description and think, I would like to be that kind of person, how do you have it? How did, how did this person have it? All right, let's start with the first. What kind of person is being described? Let me read a few verses again with an emphasis because I want you to see this for yourself. Verse 2, the second part. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Second part of the next verse. His righteousness endures forever. And that's repeated later on. Next verse, 4. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright... He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. Verse 6, For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. Now think about that. The person who's being described is righteous. How does that term land with you? Because if somebody came up to you and said, Oh, well, you certainly seem to be a righteous person, you might think, Hey, shut up. You know, because the way that might feel to you is that they're saying, You're self-righteous. Or you think you're better than everybody. Or you're holier than thou. That could be the connotation of the word righteous. That's not what it means in in this kind of scripture. Something that we've looked at as we've been looking at different psalms is that psalms have different genres. They're different kinds of psalms. Some psalms are for crowning a king. Some psalms are to give you the words when you want to give thanks. Some are for being really happy. Some are for being really sad. This kind of psalm, 112, is what's called a wisdom psalm. And a wisdom psalm is like other wisdom literature in the Bible, things like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and other psalms. And a huge theme in wisdom scripture is that you've got this separation between the righteous and the wicked. Now, I, I want to be really careful here because I want, you, I want us to be on the same page about those terms. When, when wisdom scriptures, when they say the righteous, does that mean, okay, there's these people and they always do the right thing and they never make mistakes and they never do bad things? No. The Bible makes that very clear. The wicked are those people who are just, they're just orcs and, and they have no lovable qualities and they have nothing endearing about them. They can do no noble thing. No. That, those monikers, those categories are to say, these are people who know God and fear Him and love Him 
and want to reflect what he's like. Those are the righteous. The wicked are those who are doing what comes naturally to all of us. That's the wicked. Now, the wicked only gets a mention in the last in this psalm at the very end. Verse 10 is about the wicked, but Psalm 111 is about the righteous. Now, if that term doesn't if it doesn't land well, what does righteousness look like in action? And when you hear the description, you think, "Man, I would like to be that guy." This is the kind of person where we say it just seems and it, by the way, I'm going to keep saying he just because the psalm says he but I'm talking about a righteous person, he or she. But it just seems like he hits on all cylinders. Whether you're a conservative kind of person or a progressive liberal kind of person or you're kind of in-between, wishy-washy, you admire this person. For instance, it says this person is wealthy. But it also is descriptive about he lends. You get in a a bind, he'll lend money to you. And he not just lend... He distributes wealth. He gives to the poor freely. Distributes his own wealth. Um, He's a righteous person, but it says that his kids become the mighty in the land. This is not the, here's this really righteous, real religious, real churchy person who is so stern and such a disciplinarian and so stilted that their kids all rebel. No. His kids flourish. And this is my favorite one. It says that he's merciful, but then toward the end it says, he looks in triumph on all his adversaries. And that was my favorite one, to just go, okay, that was the slam dunk. Because it'd be one thing if you're really aggressive and then you looked in triumph over your enemies. But if you can, in the same lifetime, be a merciful person and win at the end, that's a win-win. That's a slam dunk. And that's, that's the righteous person. So that's the category, okay? This is the kind of... And, oh, and also, just things that anyone would want. His heart is stable. His heart is steady and firm. We talked about this about a month ago. You know, none of us would say, what I really aspire to in life is to be more flaky. What I aspire to in life is to freak out more often and more severely. Uh, what, what I aspire to is to be more off-kilter and really up and down during the course of the same day. No, we all want to be like steady, firm, inwardly strong people. Stable. That, that's the righteous man. How do you get it? How do you get it? Now, this is where it's really important that 111 and 112 go together. Okay? I, if, I, if I had a whiteboard, I think I would start drawing lines at this point. Let me just let me point out a few things. First off, 111 and 112 and the next few psalms are batched together by Old Testament scholars. They're called Hallelujah Psalms because they start with what words? Praise the Lord. Hebrew, Hallelujah. The next thing, and this is significant, both 111 and 112 are acrostics. And an acrostic, we do this in English, where you take the alphabet... And the first letter of each phrase or each sentence follows the sequence of the alphabet. 111 and 112 do that with the Hebrew alphabet. 111 ends by talking about the fear of the Lord. And that's a huge deal in wisdom literature. What does 112 start with? The fear of the Lord. 
And the Psalms, Psalm 112 quotes 111. I'm going to talk about that in a second. But anyway, all that to say, they definitely go together. You're supposed to look at them together. Now, why is that important? All right, just set that aside for a second. The question on the table is, how do you get that righteousness? How do you become this person? I'm going to do something. I don't know if I've ever done this. I'm going to read you. This is awesome. You're going to work for me. All right? I'm going to, I'm going to read three verses of the Bible, and I want you to listen to what is the common strand. What's the principle that all three verses demonstrate, and then I want you to say it to me, or at least fill in the blank. You ready? I'm going to read one from the psalm, and, and what I'm going to read from the psalm is said twice in the psalms, verbatim. I'm going to read from a historical book, and then I'm going to read from a prophet. All right, here we go. Here's the one that's said twice in the psalms. Is talking about idols, like actual statue idols. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Here's the one from the historical books. This is from 2 Kings. It's, it's looking back on Israel's history, talking about big mistakes they made. And here's what it says. They despised God's statutes and His covenant that He made with their fathers and the warnings that He gave them. They went after false idols and became false. From the prophets, Hosea. Like the first free on the, like the first fruit, like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, God says, "I saw your fathers." But they came to Baal Peor. Now, that's an idol. They came to Baal Peor, and they consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Now, there are other passages like this, but I want you to fill in the blank for me. The common strand in all of that is that we become like what we worship. We become like what we worship. Now, there's a really yucky manifestation of that. And then there's a really hopeful manifestation of that. Uh, The yucky manifestation, there's all kinds of ways we could go with this, but here's what that means. Something we often talk about is that we all have kind of public religion, public theology, and then we've got our real religion and our real theology. And the real theology is what drives what we do and how we feel and what we dream about. Now, here's the thing. Take the example of work. Work is a good thing. As we like to say from time to time, it's important to remember that. Work was not a punishment for sin. Work was part of God's unfallen creation. And if you've ever gone without work, you have felt the absence of a good thing in your life. And you've wanted it back. Work is good. But what happens when you go from trying to be a a good, faithful, productive worker to worshiping it? And that can be so sly. No one sets out to go, I will bow down to work. You know, one little litmus test might be when you start with all the people around you, it could be friends. It could, and this is out of the office, it could be for sure with family, is that if everybody does what they're supposed to, you're fabulous around them. 
And if anybody messes up, you're insufferable. Because that's becoming like work as a God. If work was an actual deity, what would it say to you? What would one of the creeds be? Do what you're supposed to and you will be rewarded. Make a mistake and you will be punished. And without meaning to, we are starting to treat people like that because we have become like what we worship. Because we went from being good hard workers to giving work this deep down place in my heart where my best energies, my dreams, uh, my comforts are rooted. You can do it with anything. Uh, Tim mentioned children when he was talking about idols in our worship preparation. How how about uh, exercise? Exercise is a good thing. It even says that in the New Testament. Bodily exercise is a value. But what happens if you worship it? Well, you'll know when uh, if you ever get laid up and you can't exercise for a week and you feel worthless. That you've become like what you worship. It's not just, yeah, man, I wish I could get out, but I need to heal up or I need to... what. It's I feel like I have no value till I get back out there. Yuck. Now, that's the bad news version. Okay, but what, what could be hopeful about this? Let's go back to how did, how did the psalm before end? How did 111 end? And then how does 112 start? 111 ended by saying, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And, you know, in the Bible, wisdom is not just, I'm a brainiac. I'm the smartest guy in the room. But wisdom is thinking about reality in a way that's true to who God is and what He's revealed so that I know how to navigate the complexities of real life. Because real life is complex. It's typically not black and white. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's the end of 111. And then the beginning of this psalm says what? Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And then what? Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments. Now, why is that so important? It's not just that if you worship an idol, that we become like that idol. The principle just is true across the board. We become like what we worship. And here's the thing. If we know and worship the one true God, fear Him and delight in Him and trust in Him and worship Him, guess what happens? We become like Him. Now understand what I mean by that. He'll always be the Creator and we'll always be the creatures. But what I mean is that we start to reflect back to Him His own characteristics. I said a little while ago that... um, 112 quotes 111. Yeah, where does it quote it? It says about God, His righteousness endures forever. Saying that about God. Then what does it say about the person in 112? Twice. His righteousness endures forever. And then you get this one. In 111, it says, and it says this all through the Bible, that God is gracious and merciful. Man, He doesn't treat us like we deserve. Man, He doesn't take us out at the knees like we deserve. He is gracious and merciful. This person fears this God who's like that. So what does it do to that person? 
Look in verse 4. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. Let me ask you this. Do not raise your hand or there will be a forest of hands. How many of you struggle with being quick to anger? Okay. I do too. Now, if it's between praying, God help me not be so quick to anger, and not praying, pray that. But here's what I'm wanting us to think about. Have we ever thought about... I don't just need to pray, to pray God... Help me not be so quick to anger. But have we thought about the transformative power of worshiping God who is not slow to anger and worshiping Him for not being quick to anger? Worshiping Him for being slow to anger. Not as an abstraction, but to really meditate on what does that mean in my life? Not just how is He generically slow to anger? How has He demonstrated day in and day out that when I've given him every reason to be hacked off at me, that he has been over and over patient and slow to anger. If, if someone did to me over the course of a year what I do to him in one day, I would cut them off. But he's slow to anger and to praise him for that. That is the only thing that really gets into the heart of hearts and doesn't just modify behavior, but really starts to change what we are like deep, deep down under the behaviors. Look at another one. In Psalm 111, one of the things it says is that God's a provider. He he gives food. He he just gives what we need. He's hands-on. He loves creation. He, He takes care of it. His mighty works. So then what does that do to this person who fears Him? Oh, man, all kinds of stuff. Look at, uh, look at verse 9. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. Uh, maybe if for whatever, for whatever it is in your past, maybe because you grew up and things were really awful financially, and there's just this real, there's this trending toward, I'm going to keep a tight fist around my money. I'm going to control it. And you want to be more generous, but it's hard to. Maybe it's not just that we pray, God, make me more generous, but we praise God that He is. God, whether I'm generous or not, you're generous. Whether I'm slow to anger or not, you're slow to anger. Whether I'm faithful to the people around me, you're always faithful to your people. And for that to have transforming power. Now, but if, if we stop there, I think we sell ourselves short. Because, I, you know, I asked something earlier. Can people like us be remembered forever? I mean, could we ever be so generous to the poor that we are remembered forever? If Napoleon is largely forgotten by us, I just don't think I can be that generous. I don't think I can be that gracious and merciful where just, you know, humanity just remembers Brian. He was the best. I, I don't, I, no, I don't think that's going to happen. So is the psalmist being disingenuous? 
And he, now here's the amazing thing. This, this has happened over and over looking in Psalms where the psalmist said more than perhaps even he knew. Almost certainly. Because here's what you and I know that the psalmist couldn't. Is that, look in verse 7. Winston Churchill once quoted this verse when he spoke to the U.S. Congress. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. What would be the ultimate bad news? What would be the ultimate bad news for anybody in this room? Look down in verse 10. The wicked man sees it, his righteous life, and he's angry. He gnashes his teeth. He melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. The ultimate bad news would be that we deceive ourselves and we think that I've been a good person. I've tried to be generous. I've tried to give. I've tried to help with nonprofits. Try to be a good friend. Try to be a good worker. Try to be a good member of my family. And to stand before God when we die and to realize that I'm coming here in my own merits. And really what I've done is just dress up wickedness. That I was kind to the poor and I was kind to the people around me and I tried to be a generous person and I wanted to be remembered forever because really I was running a giant PR campaign about myself. That would be the ultimate bad news, would be on that day to be in verse 10. And here's the amazing thing. This is in the Old Testament but it is run through an amplifier in the New Testament. And by the way, if you're visiting, if you are so inclined, I would love for you to come back this fall because we are studying in the New Testament in Romans and we are going to, we are going to pound on what I'm, I'm, I'm about to say. Is that God looks at people like us and says, I can really change what you're like. But the change you will experience would never be enough for you to walk through the gates of heaven. That would require a flawless righteousness. But what did it say? The person who's not afraid of bad news does what? Makes all the right changes? Whatever God says? He trusts in the Lord. That God says, if you will trust me, I will take care of your sin. I'll separate it from you as far as the east is from the west. The Bible says, I'll atone for it. Not through what you do, but through what my son Jesus Christ does. And I will give you a righteousness that you did not manufacture, that you did not earn. I will adhere it to you. I will credit it to you so that not just now, and not just till you die, but from right now, when you trust and believe, till you die, and then after death forever, your righteousness will endure. It will be such great righteousness that I, as the Holy God, can look at it, and your righteousness will endure forever. Unbelievable. And here's the thing. It may be that the real work for you this morning, if I may say work, is not to, well, I need to work on my impatience. I need to work on the fact that I'm quick to anger. 
is that the real thing that you need to look at is, have I ever for the first time trusted God that He can make me clean? Because Think about this. If you do that, you will be remembered forever. Will you be remembered by every human being? No, because some human beings will be the wicked. May it not be one person in this room. They will not remember you. But God will remember you forever as you are before Him. And your brothers and sisters with you will remember you forever and you will remember them. You will be remembered forever, which we crave, but we try to get to it through work and money. Um, I want to end with this. I, I take, uh, usually take Fridays off. This past Friday, I just um, was kind of in the mood to watch something and queued up Netflix. And uh, I was watching, and I saw this years ago, and I haven't looked at it again, the Ken Burns series on PBS about the national parks. Did any of you see, see this? It's so good. And just watched about an hour of the first episode, and um, it's really talking about the, the formation of the idea of national parks because this is unique in the world. And there's all these quotes of you know, environmentalists and thinkers and John Muir and people like that. But there was a quote by Ralph Waldo Emerson. Now, not my go-to person for theological content normally, okay? So just... But listen, um, listen to what he said. I tracked this quote down. This is from an essay called Nature, shockingly. And here, just two sentences. At the gates of the forest, the surprised man of the world is forced to leave his city estimates of great and small, wise and foolish. And get this. The, the knapsack of custom falls off his back with the first step he makes into these precincts. The knapsack of custom. In other words... Emerson says, take somebody that's just wound super tight out of the super busy city, industrial age, and bring them to these ancient forests and just watch what is normal, what's customary, come off them. Now, is he right? No and yes. Can the forest transform you? No, they're people that live in unbelievable beauty and, and we don't want to be like them. But what does he write about? There is a beauty that will transform you. And actually the ancient forests and everything we love in creation is a reflection of that original beauty. It is the beauty of God himself. Paul says, when you behold God through faith, just trust him and you meditate on Him, and you love Jesus, and you trust Him, you're looking at Him with faith, it transforms you. Here's what I'm about to pray. I'm going to pray that for the person here who's never trusted Him for the first time, that you're going to trust Him today. Because today is the day of salvation. But that if you know Him that you're not going to waste a Sunday. That you're going to think about how is God different than me in the ways that I least like about me. And you're going to look at Him through His Word and by faith 
and you're going to soak in it and think about how He is not like us and you're going to praise Him and I'm going to praise Him and slowly, by His Spirit, we're going to become like what we worship. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for just that. Please, for the man or the woman or the child who's here who, who doesn't know that they could die and stand before you and be seen as righteous forever, that he or she will trust you to take care of that through Jesus, to wash them and make them whole, and cleanse them, and they'll trust you, that you'll give that to them, you'll give them faith. To the person who knows you, but so discouraged about how we're not changing, that you would remind us how to worship you, worship you for how you're not like us. And as we look on you, as we look at the gospel, as we remember Jesus, that you transform us from the inside. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.